Thank you, Rod. Rod texted me uh, yesterday afternoon and asked for a bio. I noticed, Rod, that you skipped over the, the part that I put in there, tell them that I'm so good looking. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes, my name is Brian Ryan. Uh, I'm the youngest of four, so f for quite a while I grew up thinking my name was Brian Crying Ryan, but anyway, so. There's really no way to transition, so let's transition like this. Uh, I titled my lesson this morning as uh, Thursday, April 6th, AD 30. And you do a Google search, you can find some interesting things that occurred on April 6th. For instance, on April 6, 1934, the Ford Motor Company becomes the first automobile manufacturer to announce the option for white sidewall tires on its new cars. The price of a set of four tires was $11.25. I need to get new tires on my F-150. I'm hoping they bring back that special. So, On April 6th, 1931, the first ad uh, afternoon radio program for children made its debut. Anybody want to venture to guess? Little Orphan Annie. Okay. On April 6th, 1917, U.S. Congress formally declared war on Germany. So thus propelling the U.S. into World War I. On April 6, 1909, Robert Perry allegedly becomes the first person to reach the North Pole. Uh, that claim is not verified and still widely contested. On April 6, 1896, the first modern Olympic Games opened in Athens. 241 athletes from 14 countries took part in the first Olympiad. The event took place over 1,500 years after the last ancient Greek games. So I thought that was interesting. But the event that I'd like to look at this morning that happened on April 6th was a Thursday. Now, there are solid biblical teachers that will debate whether it was Thursday, April 6th, A.D. 30, some believe that it was April 2nd, A.D. 33, that this Thursday in question that we're talking about, this Thursday of the Passion Week, so there is a debate whether it was April 6th or April 2nd, different years, but there is no debate that this Thursday of the Passion Week is a real day. It's a real day with real events, lived out with real people. It's Thursday of the Passion Week, and there's many events that unfold this day that's, that's a precursor to what will take place the very next day on Friday. And what we have preserved for us in God's Word is this amazing passage because our Heavenly Father has allowed us the behind-the-scenes look of what was planned out from eternity past. In the wise counsel of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit came together and designed a plan to redeem fallen man. And before anything was created, the three members of the Godhead 
They devised this plan that Jesus would die in order to redeem those who he had set his eternal love upon. And we need to understand that not only was it predetermined that Jesus would die, but it was also predetermined when he would die. As to the year, as to the month, as to the day, as to the hour. And this Thursday, this Thursday of the Passion Week, was preparation for what would take place the very next day. So take your copy of the Scriptures and turn to Mark chapter 4, 14, if you've not done so already. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You how You preserved it for us, for our understanding. And God, I pray that in our time together this morning, You would encourage us where we need to be encouraged. You would convict us where we need to be convicted. And You would challenge us where we need to be challenged. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Point number one on your outline is the Passover prepared. The Passover prepared. Before we look at verse 12, I want us to go back to verse 10 to kind of set the context. In verse 10 of of chapter 14, it says that Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And they were glad when they heard this. What a sad commentary on where they were at. They were glad and they promised to give him money and they began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. And Jeff pointed out last week, if you look back at verse 1 of Mark 14, he says, Now the Passover of the unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize Jesus by stealth to kill him. Now look at verse 2. They were saying, not during the festival, not during the Passover, not during this celebration. Otherwise, there might be a riot of the people. It was this Passover that God had chosen from eternity past that the Messiah would die. You know, I find it really ironic here that, that, you know, many times throughout Jesus' ministry, the religious leaders wanted to put Jesus to death, but they could not because it wasn't his time yet. And now they want to postpone putting him to death, but they can't even do that. Because Jesus is going to die on God's timetable that God had created from eternity past. Now look at verse 12. Now on the first day of the unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples, and Luke's gospel tells us that it was Peter and John so Peter and John said to, he, they say, uh, Jesus says to Peter and John, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. And the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. 
You know, all that transpired was planned out in eternity past. And Jesus even confirms this in, in, uh, in John's Gospel. In John 12, Jesus is praying. And look at Jesus' prayer. He says, my soul has become troubled. And, and then he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But it was for this purpose I came to this hour. You know, God has established the time when the death of our Lord would take place. And on this Thursday, we see the divine preparations that leads us to Friday. And so here in Mark 14, we see the drama of the, uh, of the death of our Lord begins to unfold. And again, like I said, many times during Jesus' ministry, Jesus even himself said, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But now he begins to say, this is the hour. This is why I came. It's now Thursday. And the preparations are being made to observe the Passover meal. And this is the plan of God. It's got God's hand written all over it. And God allows us to see the behind-the-scenes working of this eternal plan of redeeming, redeeming a people for His own possession. The Lord sets up the Passover meal at a place that no one knew. Jesus tells Peter and John, He says, go prepare this, this Passover meal. He doesn't give them any names. He doesn't give them any locations. All He says is, go into the city and follow the man who's carrying a pitcher of water. Go to a house who I've not identified for you. And then he says this. He says, don't identify who you are. But he says this. When you, when you see this man, tell him the teacher. The teacher. And so you have to ask the question, why the secrecy? You know, why is Jesus being so cryptic here? Well, we need to remember that Judas began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Jesus knew that if word got out as to when and where they were going to meet and have this celebration, he would have been arrested before he could even institute the Lord's table with his disciples. Our Lord had to celebrate the Passover to fulfill all righteousness, the Lord had to celebrate the Passover and transition it, trans transform it into the Lord's table with a new memorial which will be for all the redeemed for all time. The Lord has a secret plan because there's things yet He needs to accomplish. He will only be portrayed and arrested on His schedule. And everything happened according to God's timetable. Jesus needed to be arrested late, late Thursday night or early Friday morning. So in the reality, if you see all this, as you look back, Jesus' death didn't take place at the hands of Judas, but God used Judas to initiate that plan. His death did not take place at the hands of the religious leaders but God uses them as well. And I love how Peter puts it in, in Acts. Here we have the day of Pentecost, and Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit, 
He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you, you yourselves know. And then he says, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You know, Job 42.2 reminds us that, that no purpose of God's can ever be thwarted. Everything is working out because of God the Father has designed it from eternity past. Now, we don't know if uh, Jesus prearranged with the owner of this home. Is that at, that's where they were going to have the Passover. Scriptures don't tell us. We don't know if Jesus supernaturally caused it to happen while he was away. We don't know. But either way, it would not have been a, an issue for our Lord. This was given to us to show us that everything needed to be done in secrecy. All was done according to God the Father's timetable. Now, before we move on, some of you might be thinking of a little bit of a con contradiction here or a little bit of a dilemma. And some might be asking, you know, how could Jesus and his disciples eat the Passover meal on a Thursday when the lambs were not slaughtered until Friday? Well, I have a little time that I can tell you this. I can only give you a brief explanation how this works. If you're interested in knowing more about this, come talk to me afterward and I'll lead you where you can go study this. But you've got to remember that in this area, at this festival time, at this celebration of the Passover, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people being here. And in Jer Jerusalem, they were all there to slaughter their lambs so that they can celebrate the Passover meal. Well, the Passover was celebrated on Thursday and Friday. This alleviated the number of people that needed to bring their lambs to the priests for slaughter. It divided that, that group in half. And as, as things have it, those who traveled from the northern area, from Galilee to the, from the north, they would celebrate the Passover on Thursday. Those living in and amongst Jerusalem, they would celebrate it on Friday. And so there were really two Passovers, one on Thursday and one on Friday. And it has to do with how they looked at the calendar, how they looked at how they measured a day. And again, if you want more information, come talk to me afterwards and I'll, I'll lead you where you can go study this. But uh, time doesn't allow me to get into the detail of all this. And so Peter and John are sent to sacrifice the lamb during the day on Thursday so that Jesus and his disciples could eat the meal Thursday night. And then later that night, early morning Friday, Jesus would be arrested. He'd be tried in a kangaroo-type court and then he would be handed over to the Romans for crucifixion. There's a small window of opportunity for all this to take place. Jesus, the perfect lamb, must die on the cross at the same time that the priests are killing the lambs inside the temple grounds during Friday's celebration. And so I think it's important for us to maybe just even pause right now and just understand the implication for us you know, God is working behind the scenes even now to bring this, this age to a close. 
Just as God worked behind the scenes to fulfill the plan for the cross, he's also working behind the scenes even now to bring this age that we live in to a close. You know, in Mark chapter 13, in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, uh, a lesson that Corbett brought us a couple of weeks ago, and thank you for doing that. There is so much detail in there where he talked about the future events. And God is even now working behind the scenes to bring his plan to completion. Those of us who are in Christ, we need not be afraid. We need not be afraid of what the future holds for us. You know, when we see a continual disregard and blatant hatred for God and the things of God, we need to remind ourselves that that God is at work behind the scenes to bring us to him in glory. God's promise to us in in, uh, Hebrews 13.5 says that he will never desert us, nor will he ever forsake us. So we need to be comforted that God is still on his throne. Our second point. We reach the final Passover celebrated, and then we reach the Lord's table instituted. Take a look with me in verse 17. He says, And when it was evening, he came with his... came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one will betray me, one who is eating with me. And then they began to be grieved and say to him, One by one, surely not I. And he said to them, It's one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, But woe to that man whom the Son of Man has betrayed. It would have been good for that man if you've not been born. I need for you to stop and think about this for a minute. Every Passover that was celebrated prior to this one was a symbol. It was a picture. It was a symbol and a picture of the one that they were celebrating this night. It was one that pointed to where the perfect Lamb would, uh, of God would come and give ultimate sacrifice for the sins for those who would believe. So all the previous Passovers before this one were pointing to this one. This is the one that all the others were anticipating. And Jesus even said in, in Luke twenty two fifteen, he says, he says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He earnestly desired to eat it with him because he knew he was going to transform it into a memorial of the Lord's table. There's so much taught during this time of this Passover evening meal. Uh, this evening meal probably took anywhere, anywhere from four, five, or six hours. Uh, and so much was, was, has taken place during this time. I would even encourage you to go back and read uh, John chapter 13 through John chapter 17. Because in those five chapters, Jesus teaches his disciples that evening during the Passover. And as you read those, you, you, you get a, a glimpse of God's love and his compassion in his caring for his disciples. And those words are preserved for us as well. Mark doesn't go into detail of what the celebration of the Passover lamb looked like, 
But I do think it's important for us to understand the sequence of events that took place. So looking at all the other Gospels together and, and using other outside sources, we get a better idea, a better picture of what transpired this evening. And I think it's important for us to, to kind of take a look at that. So this morning, I just want to give you a thumbnail sketch of what took place on that Thursday night. The Passover meal centered around the pouring and drinking of four cups diluted with wine. Those memorial or purpose of the cups are given to us and they're found in Exodus chapter 6. In Exodus chapter 6, it says this, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of, Egypt, of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from the slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. So the progression of the, the Passover meal would look something like this. First, it would have opened in prayer. At the beginning, they would have thanked God for his preservation, for his deliverance, for his protection, for his goodness. Just thanking God and recognizing who he is for his many blessings. And then we would have the first cup the cup of sanctification. From that passage out of Exodus, it's, I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. And then after this, they would have had the ceremonial washing of hands. This would have been to remind them that they needed moral and spiritual cleansing. That they needed a holy heart when they come before God. You know, they were celebrating God's deliverance from spiritual bondage to sin as they remembered his deliverance from physical bondage in Egypt. And so the ceremonial washing of hands was just to remind them that they needed to be holy when they approached their holy God. Next, what would take place is the eating of the bitter herbs. The eat, eating of the bitter herbs here was symbolic of the bitter bondage that their forefathers had endured while they were in Egypt. And it's some biblical scholars at this point believed that in this point of the dinner that a dispute arose among the disciples. Luke records that for us in Luke 22. It says that there arose a dispute among the di disciples as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. So in the midst of all this, pride sinks in. And it was probably at this time, as recorded for us in John 13, where Jesus gets up from the dinner to wash the disciples' feet. And the purpose was to teach them that the greatest among them is the one who would be the servant of all. You know, you think about it, they just went through a ceremonial washing of the hands to remind them of their need for moral and spiritual cleansing and holiness of heart. You know, it's, it's easy to condemn them, the disciples, 
how quickly pride slipped into their hearts, but yet so for us as well, pride comes into our hearts. How oftentimes do we gather to worship corporately and we think that our gathering together is all about us, and it's not. It's all about our Lord. It's all about how we might serve one another. It's really how we worship God through serving others. And so pride rears its ugly head. After the bitter herbs, the second cup was served. The cup of judgment. Again, coming from Exodus, it says, I will deliver you from slavery to them. It was at this time the explanation of the meaning of the Passover would have been presented. And tradition holds that uh, the one who would present the remembrance of what happened on that first Passover, uh, the one presenting that would have, been, would have been the head of the household. And in this case, it was Jesus. Jesus would have had led the disciples in reminding them and explaining to them the purpose of the Passover. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Jesus to explain to his disciples that night the meaning and the purpose of the Passover when he is the perfect Passover lamb who will be giving up his life the very next day and sometimes, you know, I like to think that as he was teaching them about the meaning of the Passover, I'm sure he would have included details of what happened that first Passover evening because he was there. He understood. You know, there's so much in Scripture that, that we don't have of what Jesus recorded is saying. But what we do have is sufficient for life and godliness. But there's so much more that he said, I'm sure that evening, to encourage and to point his disciples to what's about to take place. So after the rendition of that first Passover, the next thing is they would stand up and they would sing a praise, uh, the Hallel, coming from Psalms 113 to 118. And after they would sing this praise, they would bring out the roasted lamb, and then they would sit and eat and enjoy themselves. Verse 18 in our text, it says, as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one will betray me, one who is eating with me. Look at verse 19. It says that the disciples began to grieve and say to one another, surely not I. You know, here we get a sense of the sincerity of their hearts. You know, after being rebu rebuked by Jesus' lesson when he washed their feet, they begin to realize that they could become sensitized to their own sin, to their own wickedness in their own hearts. And so here we see that, that when he tells them that, that someone in this group is going to betray them, they finally begin to understand, just not so long ago, I was thinking I was the greatest. 
And now I'm being accused that I might be the one to betray Him. In verse 20, Jesus said to them that it's the one of the twelve who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it was written of Him. But woe to that man whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Look at these next words. Verse 21. It would have been good for that man had he not been born. Those are some heavy words. You know, and I think it's appropriate here to take some time to pause and to uh, let that reality sink in. Judas at this time will forever be judged by God's eternal wrath because he refused to repent and believe in what he was exposed to by God's grace. So today, as we are looking back, as we're going through this passage, Judas is being reserved for judgment. You know, think about the things that that Judas was exposed to in his travels with Jesus. All the various miracles. I'm sure Judas had some one-on-one time with Jesus and asked him questions and and marveled at Jesus' response and answers to those questions. As he sat idly by and listened to other people question Jesus, he was totally amazed at at what came out of uh, Jesus' mouth, out of his heart. I think we need to realize that at this very moment, all who have died without believing, without turning from their sin, are being reserved for all eternity to experience the wrath of God, just as Judas is. You know, Carla and I have been at Countryside here for over 17 years. And during that time, we've witnessed people, sad to say, that we've even served with. Those who were in leadership positions have turned their back on the biblical gospel. And unless they repent, they will suffer the same future as Judas. And there might be some here this morning who've heard the gospel time in and time out, but yet you have refused to repent. You have refused to believe. My plea for you this morning is to be not unbelieving, but to repent and turn to Christ. The next in our our Passover evening is that Judas was dismissed. John's Gospel records it this way for us. He says, when Jesus had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to uh, Judas in John chapter 13. So Judas dipped a morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan entered into his heart, and therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And Judas left. The other disciples were unaware of what, what Judas was doing. And then finally, or not finally, but next, we come to the third cup, the cup of redemption. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. 
this third cup is where Jesus transforms the Passover meal in the celebration of the Lord's table. Look at verse 22. He says, while they were eating, some took the, some of the bread and after a blessing, he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, take it. This is my body. And we had taken the cup and he gave them thanks. He gave it to them and he, uh, they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant of, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink from the fruit of the vine until that, that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Jesus at this moment in time changes the cup of redemption as also known as the cup of blessing to a new covenant of my blood. Jesus declared that this new covenant would be poured from the cup of salvation in his blood. The cup of redemption stood for more than just the, the, the Hebrews escape from Egypt here. It stood for the plan and the purpose of God from all the ages. We need to understand here that, that judgment and salvation, wrath and redemption, are brought together in the mystery of one cup. And Jesus is not speaking of the cup in a purely symbolic manner here. He was describing the events that would occur in his own life on Friday, the very next day, as he faces the cross. The fourth cup and final cup in a regular Passover meal is the cup of praise or consummation. This cup was not celebrated that night. This cup was bypassed. Jesus skipped over this cup that night. However, it will be celebrated one more time when this age is over. When we, when the culmination of this age and we are with the Lord, we will celebrate this cup with Him in eternity. Verse 26 tells us that after singing a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. And next on our outline, we have the, the prediction of denial. The prediction of denial. And Jesus said to them, <clears throat> You will all fall away because it was written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing as well. You know, sometimes we give Peter a hard time because we think that it was only him that denied Christ and only him that, that fleed in fear that night. But in reality, all his disciples scattered. This warning was to all of them. In verse 27, Jesus quotes from Zechariah 13:7, and he applies those words to himself as being the shepherd and his disciples as the sheep. And essentially, this is what he's telling them. He's saying to these men that he loved, to these men that he's chosen to be the pillars of the church, 
He's telling them, you will fail me. You will falter. You will be scattered. But look at the encouragement he gives them in verse 28. He says, after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And what Jesus is saying here is, is, is no matter what you do, no, no matter your failings, no matter your denying me, it will not prevent me from accomplishing my purposes for why I came. I will accomplish everything that God the Father has planned out for me from eternity past. And because I accomplish these things, and because I will do them, I will be with you again. What a promise that he gives them. You know, you look at Peter's persistence, that he's, he's persistently stubborn here. In verse 29, he says, Even though all, all may fall away, and yet I will not. And then Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you that, that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourselves will deny me three times. And then Peter, again, kept insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not den deny you. But they were all saying the same thing. You know, I appreciate Peter's loyalty here, but we all, like Peter, promise God many things. Oh God, I, I promise I won't do that sin again. God, I promise I won't. We're just like Peter. There's nothing we can promise God to earn his favor. We all fall flat on our face. But like the disciples, we have the Savior's, the Savior's promise that he will bring us back to himself. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Next on our outline. We move to the prayer in Gethsemane. They came to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I've prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to become very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And then he went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground and he began to pray that if it were possible, that this hour might pass by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all these things is, are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And yet not what I will, but you will. You know, here we see that the deepest sorrow that Jesus had ever experienced you know, the primary cause of this anguish that he's experiencing is the recognition, recognition that he would soon become the bearer of sin and the object of the Father's wrath. He would become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of him. For the first time in all eternity, Jesus was about to experience alienation from his Father. The grief was so taxing that, that in Luke's gospel, it says that his sweat became like drops of blood. It was here in the garden that Jesus faced his greatest moment of temptation. 
as he contemplated the cup of divine wrath being poured out on him. You know, as we read on and we begin to sense that his disciples began to abandon him, even as they could not stay awake to pray for him. Look at verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping. And Peter, he said, as he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for an hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were, were very heavy, and they did not know what, what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? And then he says this, It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of Get up. Let us be, be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. You know, in just the casual reading of this, we would, we would tend to think that the disciples were, were undisciplined and, and unable to focus th through their time of prayer. I'm wondering how many here have fallen asleep during their personal prayer time. I know I have. As you look at the other accounts of the, in the Gospels uh, that we have, uh, we find that the disciples, uh, they were overcome by fatigue, but they were also full of sorrow and despair because all night and all evening long, Jesus was preparing them for what would take place on Friday. In Luke 22, verse 45, it says that when Jesus rose from prayer and he came to his disciples, he found them sleeping, and the reason they were sleeping was from sorrow. They were sleeping from sorrow. But as you study this section, verses 37 through 41, uh, you begin to see an intense, there is a great joy in this. There's a, a, a great reason to be thankful. I want you to look again at verse 41. At verse 41, Jesus comes to his disciples a third time and he says to them, are you still sleeping and resting? And then he says, it is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Do you see the greatness there? The joy? Rather than shrinking back in fear and trying to hide, Jesus is boldly going out to meet his enemies. Jesus is putting his face towards the cross, even at this time. I like the way John MacArthur said it. John MacArthur says it this way, The Lord exhibited no fear in the face of death. The cup of divine wrath was in his hand, but he was no longer trembling. He issued the triumphant command to go out and meet the enemies. Instead of running away from the cross, Jesus moved toward it with settled confidence. What a Savior. What a God. And then finally, on our outline, we move to the arrest in Gethsemane. Verse 43, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by the crowd with swords and clubs who were, 
the, uh, who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming to Judas immediately, uh, after coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and he kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. Verse 47, but one of those who stood by drew his sword, and then John's gospel identifies that as Peter, good old Peter, and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus performs yet another miracle and heals that man's ear. Verse 48, Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But this had to been take place to fulfill the scriptures. That last statement in verse 49 this had to take place to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus is not reducing their guilt for their actions. But our Lord is acknowledging that all these events were fulfilled, were to fulfill the scriptures that were foretold about him. You know, there are, there are many, numerous predictions of Jesus' death foretold in scripture. Uh, we don't have time to go through all of these, but these are a few that, that stood out to me that uh, got my attention. In Psalm 41.9, it says, For even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his hill against me. And again, speaking of Judas in Psalm 55, it says this. It says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. No, it's the one who hates me who has exalted his, his himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him, but it is you, a man of my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. That's what he calls Judas. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. You even see... In a, in a sense, the compassion that Jesus had for Judas in this time. I think of even of Christ's own words that we've studied earlier in Mark chapter 10. It says they were on the road going up to Jer Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed. Uh, and those who followed were, were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. He said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered into the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. So now it's, it's nearly midnight or after midnight. It's probably early Friday morning. The arrest of our Lord set into motion a rapid fire of series of events that will culminate at his crucifixion on that Friday. Mark closes out this section by telling us that in verse 50, they all left him and fled. 51, we have this interesting account. 
A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. This account, I think, is in here. Uh, you know, some believe that this is Mark himself, is the young man that, uh, that fled naked. But I think the point of emphasis here is, is, is the complete isolation Christ experienced in this moment. You know, throughout Christ's ministry, there were huge crowds always wanting to be with him. But not on this night. Everyone fled. The man of sorrows was left alone, surrounded only by his enemies. Implications. You know, I've already spoke of a couple of implications throughout this lesson. You know, the first implication we talked about is that God is at work behind the scenes and He's here to fulfill that which He's planned from eternity past for the redemption of the elect. You know, God is is working now to bring about the, the fulfillment of His plans to bring the elect home into His eternal presence. And we need not be afraid. Romans 8.30 says, you know, those whom he predestined, he's also called. And these he's, he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he, he also glorified. God is for us. He's not against us. Another implication we've already talked about is that those who refuse to repent of their sins and believe the gospel, they will share the same future as Judas the betrayer, that full wrath of God. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says that uh, today is an acceptable time to receive salvation. It says this, Jesus says, At an acceptable time I listened to you, and on that day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I want to leave our time this morning with another implication for us. You know, God is the one who wanted Jesus dead. Jesus voluntarily agreed to do the will of the Father for the joy that was set before Him in providing redemption for sinners with whom He, had, he will fellowship with, with all, for all eternity in, in glory. You know, this is God's divine plan. God is at work redeeming a people for His Son, by His Son, and for His own glory. The plan of redemption of man was was deliberated in the wisdom and the counsel of the three members of the, of the Godhead in eternity past. In this passage, God gives us the behind-the-scenes look of what needed to take place for that following day. And yet God's plan is, is not finished. It's borne out daily in the lives of those that He's chosen to benefit from His plan. So, another implication for those of us in this room who are trusting in that plan is I need for us not to stop marveling at what God has done to bring that divine plan into your own life. Never stop thinking of the series of events in your life where God brought the gospel to you. And don't stop marveling at that. Take some time to really think about the, what God did in order to get the gospel to you. Psalms 
77 says this says i will remember the deeds of the lord surely i will remember your wonders of old i will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds your way O god is holy what god is great like our god you are the god who works wonders you have made known your strength among the peoples you have by your power redeemed your people let's pray Gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you in praise. We praise you for who you are. We praise you for this eternal plan that, you, uh, uh, that you've designed. We thank you for your word, Lord. And even just the glimpse of what we saw, how you give us a behind-the-scenes look of what you did on that day in order that the next day can be fulfilled by your, your plan. And beyond that, Lord, we, we thank you so much how that divine plan has reached to our hearts. But I do pray for the one individual in here this morning who, who's rejecting that plan. Oh God, by your grace, open their hearts, open their minds to see their need for a Savior. Help them understand that only Jesus can save them. And God, for the rest of us, I, I pray that, that we would even marvel at what you've done in our individual lives and as we go and we worship corporately that we would would see this event this passover event in a different light understanding what you've done for us to bring us to yourself father i do pray that you would bless the rest of this time together that we might be able to encourage one another for your glory we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.